Promo Kitchen is an all-volunteer, nonprofit organization committed to the advancement of the promotional products industry through education and mentorship. If you want to get more involved, please visit us on the web at promokitchen.org. One of the ways you can get involved is by donating to our cause. We rely on our community for financial support to help cover the cost of producing our educational content and our networking mixers. You can donate today right from your phone at promokitchen.org slash donate. Thank you so much, and let's get started with the show. This episode of the Promo Kitchen podcast has been brought to you by our friends at Sanmar. Sanmar believes in the power of promotional products. Since 1971, this family-owned apparel supplier has been dedicated to passionately serving customers through trusted brands like Port Authority, Port & Company, Nike Golf, OGO, District, and Sport Tech. You can check them out online at sanmar.com. I'd like to welcome everyone to the third edition of the Promo Kitchen Rebel Podcast. We're joined today with quite the assortment of rebels slash clowns in this industry, as we like to call them. In no particular order, I would like to do some introductions. First, with the person I like the least, Stephen McFadden, also known as Fen, because he sent me over his resume and a picture of himself is covering up the S-T-E part of his name. So Fen McFadden, all the way out here from North Carolina, from Perfect Promotions and More, where he's the VP of Sales. He's a pirate, not a Somalia pirate, but he's an Eastern Carolina University graduate. He's been working in the family business for the last couple of years, where it's grown tremendously over the last couple of years. So Fen, Stephen, welcome to the podcast. <laughs> Next up, all the way coming from South Florida, we've got Chris Ferreter. Yes, he herds ferrets for a living. One of the owners of Sobe Promos down in Miami, Florida. Originally from the great state of New Hampshire, where they live free or die, but decided to go down south to University of Miami to become a hurricane. And he claims he created the nickname GOAT. So we're going to get into that a little later in the podcast. But Chris, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me. The person that throws the hardest punches in this story <laughs> has got Renya Nelson, who claims to always just beat the shit out of me whenever I see her in person. Calling in from Salt Lake City, Utah. She was raised in the land of Mormons, even though she's a non-mo. Spent her early 20s in LA, started Brand Aid out of Venice and moved out to Salt Lake City sometime between 2012 and now. She never sleeps. She loves chicken wings, plays soccer on all men's leagues. She's just an all-around badass inventor of Rolling Stones Friday. Renya, I'd like to welcome you to the crew here and welcome to the third edition of the Rebel Podcast. And then everyone's favorite leader, we got Mark Graham calling in from Toronto, co-founder of Right Sleeve, co-founder of Common Skew president of the promotional products industry, just made that up. But Mark Graham, always uh, appreciate you being a good co-pilot here on the Promo Kitchen Rebel podcast as well, too. It is always an honor, and I love how you pronounce Toronto. <laughs> and <laughs> myself, because I obviously always forget to introduce myself. My name is Jason. I'm a Libra from San Francisco, co-founder of Origadio. We make cool shit done. Cool. So welcome, you guys. The Rebel Podcast is interesting and different. We do this every couple of weeks to try to get the industry turned on its right side by getting some movers and shakers that we think are doing the right things in this industry and rebelling against the competition and doing things a little differently. And this podcast is super informal. We do it more or less just to pick people's brains on a couple of hot topics that are going on in the industry. 
So feel free to chime in whenever you want. And it's more or less an open dialogue, right, Mark? You bet. You know, I've got a question I'm going to start off with, and maybe, you know, each of you guys can jump in with it. But what possessed each of you to get into this crazy industry? Like, what was the big aha moment that led you to start your respective companies? Why don't we start with you, Renya? Okay. So I really wanted to, I don't know, wanted to make brands shine. And I love product. I really, I'm a big, huge fan of product. So the fact that I was able to kind of combine those two seemed like there was nothing greater. But why'd you take the dark turn into promo though? What other turn is there? Oh, Goldman's <laughs> retail? You know what? That's tricky. That's a tricky road. I think promo, there's a lot more. I don't know. I don't know. It's a good question. Well, that's why I asked it. <laughs> I don't have an answer to that. I didn't want to just nosedive into like working with another company that went straight to retail because I think it would have limited myself to learning about all aspects of product. You know, and all of us, you know, we know some of the weirdest things about product. And I often sometimes will mention a doormat, right? And like knowing what flock is or fleck. (laughs) Now I totally don't know. But (laughs) but how many people on walking down the street could say they know the same or all the different, you know, decoration methods and whatnot? So to me, it's product first and foremost, the love of product. How about you guys? How about you, Steven? Yeah, so my story is is a little less interesting because my family started the company. So I was going to East Carolina and was trying to major in becoming James Bond, but the the major doesn't really exist. So throughout my time in college, I was just seeing all these student activities groups, apartment complexes and the university and, and everyone using you know, products with logos on it all over the place. And it was kind of a natural segue since my family had the company to try to start selling while in school, which I thought was great because I'm selling to my friends and it's not really selling when they're your friends. It's, you know, just, hey, you guys need some shirts for your fraternity or sorority, you know, let me help you out type of stuff. So that's that's how I got into it. The story is way more interesting for my parents where my dad lays my mom off. My mom hires my dad two years later in the industry, which is pretty funny. But um, <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, it's it's uh, that's kind of how I got into it. Awesome. How about you, Chris? So I went to college with Jeff Kramer's son, Spencer. Jeff Kramer started Bullet Line from the beginning until it was sold to PCNA in, I think, 2006. So you know, he was sort of a mentor to us in, in college and helped us out with a couple of projects we worked on. And when I graduated, I was working finance in DC for a, a massive defense contractor. And they called me up and said, Hey, you know, our account competes up. We're looking to get back into it. You know, would you be interested? Obviously, this guy made tons of money in promotional products. So I was interested, came down and sort of just as we kept doing it and doing it, I just realized, you know, this industry is wildly antiquated and, and sort of has you know, some opportunity for us to really make a name for ourselves, just being young and, and sort of hungry. So that was what, like five years ago now. And and sort of that was all she wrote. So that's how I got into it. Hey, Chris, when you say the industry is wildly antiquated, and that was the basis on which you wanted to get into the business, what was it about the industry that you saw as antiquated? I'll never forget my aha moment. The first Orlando ASI show that I went to. Yeah. Yeah, they send out all those sort of classes that you can attend, those seminars. And I remember sitting in this seminar. I was like, oh, all right, we'll go to social media on how to market your company. And 
I remember sitting in this seminar. This is 2011 or 12 or something along those lines. And one guy stands up and asks how to make a Facebook page. And, uh, <laughs> and the whole seminar, there was an hour long on how to create a Facebook page for your company. And we, <laughs> I mean, we had literally been using Facebook since 05, since we graduated high school. You know, we were on to Twitter and Snapchat and Instagram at this point. And I just, at that point, I was like, man, this industry is so far behind every other industry in terms of trends and technology and all those things that, that there's a real opportunity for us here in sort of offering, you know, unique product offering or using social media to sort of spread the word. And, you know, I mean, you guys have all seen it, you know, 55 to 60 year old mom and pop shops walking into your customers to try and compete against you. And it's, there's opportunity there because that's not what you're offering. How packed was that room though? How many people were in that session? It was mobbed and people were wildly interested. They were all asking questions and, you know, like, you know, how do I friend somebody on Facebook? (laughs) I had to walk out. I walked out like 30 minutes into it. I couldn't believe it. Yeah. I'm not surprised. Imagine if there was a session titled like how to set up a company website. There'd be lines out the door all the way down to, you know, Disney World from the Orlando Convention Center. Exactly right. Yeah. Cool. So super hot topic that's been just on everyone's radar and I can't stand it anymore fidget spinners. So <laughs> out of the three of you, all distributors here, yes or no, Renya, are you selling fidget spinners? Nope. Okay. Ferret Herder, are you selling fidget spinners? Yes, by the thousands. McFadden? Yes. Ah, oh, geez. Okay. Okay. So first, <laughs> Renya, so why are you not selling fidget spinners? Because it's not a product they get behind. I didn't even see one until I was in Vegas this last Wednesday. And I saw someone giving them out at someone's booth. Obviously, it was like a big conversation, you know, attention starter for that company. But, you know, it's a pad printed product and I'm not into it. Okay. So you have your biggest customer, right? Customer XYZ, call you tomorrow and say, Renya, I need 10,000 fidget spinners. What are you doing? We'll say, well, where are we shipping them to? <laughs> <laughs> Good answer. All right. McFadden. Yes. Fidget spinners. How many have you sold? What's your take on it? Do you fidget? Are you fidgeting right now? I have a fidget. It is in my car and I let my daughter play with it. But I've maybe had three orders since the beginning of the year and they're all by them requesting it to me and not the other way around. It's not a product I'm endorsing or promoting, but since it's a hot item and people are asking for it, I definitely wanted to have a supplier or, or go to, to to sell it to them okay. if they needed it. All right. So when your daughter's on the car with you and you're at that red light, are you fidgeting? Yes. <laughs> no fidget while driving. Is this an intervention? <laughs> it is. Your wife called me to get you uh, intervened on fidgeting. Not as bad as the cube, though. I do have the fidget cube as well. Yeah. Oh, those are annoying. Uh, okay, Chris. So you said by the thousands. What's the, yes. What's the biggest order that you've done so far? And are you behind the product, first of all? Minor league baseball team ordered 2,500 of them was the biggest one so far. Yep. Am I behind? Yeah, I'm not, a, I'm not a fidget spinner guy. Like, I, you know, we have them here because we give them out of samples. As a guy with serious ADD, I thought I would be more into it, but not a big fidget spinner guy. But I'll sell them. I'm just glad I'm not inventorying them because mm. I don't want to be the guy stuck with, you know, 50,000 fidget spinners when a month from now. Yeah. Yeah. We should get CJ from Hit on this podcast and see how that goes. <laughs> I'm sure he's making a boatload on them. Oh, yeah, he is for sure. And then Mark, so has the fidgeting made it north of the border to Toronto yet? So I'll tell you a funny story. 
my eldest son, Maddie, he's just turning 13. He's in grade seven. He came home like maybe six weeks ago or something and was talking about these fidget spinners and I'd never heard of them or anything. And he ordered a couple of them off Amazon because he was able to resell them. Like I think he bought them for like eight bucks or something off Amazon and sold them for 20 bucks at his school. Oh. <laughs> and, you know, he sold like just a couple of them. I'm like, dude, man, you are like, could be amazing in the promo business. And I'd never even heard of these things before. So I thought that was pretty funny. So I suppose as he sees the world, they're like super hot and cool. For me as a parent and someone who's in this industry, I look at it as, you know, just one of these trendy things that I can't necessarily get behind because I don't personally like it. But if someone came and gave me an order, I mean, why not? Yeah. Which I suppose leads to this question, you know, like what is it about fidget spinners that drives people to either love them or hate them? I haven't quite put my finger on it because it's not like when you say, you know, Bluetooth speaker or USB drive, there's the same visceral emotional reaction either way. It's like, hey, those are those are fine. What is it about fidget spinners that drive people nuts? Okay, so I'm an anti-fidget guy. I'm a fidgeter, but I'm an anti-fidget spinning guy, right? So we've been asked, oh, I'd say at least seven to ten times a week if we have inventory on fidget spinners. And it fucking drives me crazy, right? <laughs> For two reasons. One, it's a mass market commodity product, right? So it's who's priced the lowest, first of all, right? So we would never touch that. And second, if everyone else is selling it, we here at Oregadio, we we won't touch it, right? So I encourage CJ and you know Jeff Letter and all these guys from all these big companies to bring in as much inventory as they can and make their money while they can because we're turning it away, right? It drives me nuts. And for me, I grew up, you know, in the 90s and pogs were like the thing, right? Pogs were super hot for like six, seven months and then it just died super quickly. I think fidget spinners are the next pogs or the next hoverboard until someone gets hurt. Yeah. You know, someone kid swallowed one like a month ago, choked on it. The ball bearing came loose until something bad happens. It's going to fade away. Yeah. I'm with you. So maybe that's what it is, that people like have this hatred or suspicion towards products that are like come out of absolutely nowhere and then just fizzle a very quick death. And then everyone looks at it, you know, six months later and says like the pogs or, you know, something that's like equally goofy yeah. that, you know, like kind of took us all by storm and sort of fooled us as a maybe a population. Yeah. And then. You know, afterwards we can, you know, sit back and look all smugly and say like, hey, wasn't that so stupid? So like maybe we just don't want to be tricked or fooled. I kind of feel like with a lot of these novelty products, they all start with trends with children, you know, whether it be Pogs or Pokemon or spinners or whatnot. And, you know, parents will see the trends with their kids. And, and I think naturally people in marketing assume, well, if I can get to the kids, I can get to the parents. So yeah. I'm wondering if trends like this are found out because, you know, you've got children who are selling these at school and they're hot commodities and they're bringing them home. And that's what their owners of companies are seeing. Yeah. Can we talk about the bigger elephant in the room here that I failed to bring up, which is Mark Graham. First off, your seven-year-old son has an Amazon Prime account. <laughs> well, I, I suppose it was off his parents, okay. but still, you know. <laughs> that street side hustle seven eight bucks and selling at 20 on the street at school like that guy deserved a job in this industry man yep it was pretty impressive <laughs> i yeah there was like literally kids that were like stopping him in the hallway 
giving him 20 bucks for these things. <laughs> what the hell? That's amazing. That's like some high margin there. And that was before I knew that we could source them, you know, through the industry for a couple bucks. I mean, he's buying them off Amazon for eight. Yeah, times, he's got it. Right? So I just thought like, it's interesting. Although the enthusiasm for it is waning now in the hallways at Hodgson Middle School in Toronto. I think that we're starting to see that maybe by the end of the summer, these things will be dead. Well, mm-hmm. hopefully he capitalizes why it's high. You know, I can get those things for 86 cents out of Shenzhen. So if he needs a better source, let me know. <laughs> exactly. Cool. So next topic that I wanted to talk about here is, so each of you guys, right? So each of you guys are a distributor, Renya, Steven, and Chris. So I want to talk about just your overall distributor model and how you guys are differentiating versus a normal distributor. I won't even name names here, but versus a lot of these multinational distributors, each of you, if you could start an order with Renya going first, just tell me a little bit about Drive and how you guys are different than the rest of the cups of tea in this industry. Thanks for making me start all the tough ones, guys. <laughs> but you're the toughest. Uh, um, let's say different. You know, I don't know how exactly we're different, right? I think it'd be, I'd love to walk a day in the world of one of the top, you know, 10, 15, et cetera. I think many other distributors would just to know what's going on. And, you know, we always want to compare each other. We always want to compare each other. So we take notes and see what works and what isn't working and maybe pat ourselves on the back for something that we kick ass at that someone else, you know, is faxing something to. I don't know how we're different. I would say that, you know, we've tossed around the idea about sales reps a ton of times. And quite frankly, it's not something that I want to get into because I don't like dealing with people that much, let alone dealing with people who aren't going to treat our clients the way that we treat them. Does that mean we've been able to grow like rocket? No, it definitely doesn't. But is that the only way to grow? No, it's not. So we're constantly thinking of ways that we can maintain our integrity and our personality and our ability to come up with creative ideas and take the time to hash through those creative ideas. But we're always trying to come up with like what that balance is. Like, where's it going to be for us? What's it going to be for us? So was that the question? <laughs> I mean, it kind of was. You just like didn't answer it directly, but I understand the bigger picture. You know, like for you, it seems like slow and steady wins the race potentially. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Yeah. yeah, exactly. And Jason, you know how this is. And as to you, Mark, I mean, I know you guys well, and I don't know Chris and Steven as well, but I've picked Mark's brain a ton of times about how they've done it and the hunter-farmer concept. And then Jason, I've watched your team grow and you've been able to maintain you and Matt and like the culture that Oreg Audio is as you've grown, yeah. which is really cool to watch. It's so cool to see how you guys have been able to do that. And then same goes for Right Sleeve. You know, Mark started Right Sleeve. It's all him. It's his blood. It's his handprint. But, you know, at some point he had to walk away from that so that he could develop Common Skew and work on Promo Kitchen and all these other things that his creative being couldn't pursue before while he was client handholding. So I think I'm in more of that realm of like, we're getting better every day, but we're still figuring it out. Right. You know, I, I think I would jump in, you know, super quick, just as like a comment there. What you said, Renya, is that, you know, not every customer is right for you. And you also made this comment about not growing like a rocket ship. And I think at the end of the day, like that doesn't matter as long as you're growing in a way that is a responsible, B profitable and C makes you feel like you can wake up every morning and just jump out of bed and get to the office and work with those right customers right. as opposed to every customer. And 
you know, there's no question that every customer model is what you see with some other distributors. And it's not a negative comment about that at all. It's just a different part of the model. And, you know, you could argue that Jason's exactly the same way. If Jason wanted to be as big as Hit, Jason, you're, you're a smart dude. You could build a company as big as Hit, but you may not want to do that because it's not the kind of business you want to build. Right. So anyways, yeah. over to Chris and Steven, but I just wanted to, you know, drive that point home in that there's no shame in that focus and focusing on that part of the market that you really love. Yeah. Chris, how's Sobe doing it different down South Florida? Yeah, I mean, I guess it sort of goes back to what I said about the industry being antiquated and, and coming back to that point is we're all very young and we've hired all of our salespeople from outside of the industry. So everyone came from a different background, not you know your pen slinging, carrying around a roller suitcase type background in the promotional products industry. So we're staying on top of trends like that. We actually, because of our roots with Bulletline, we do a ton of sourcing overseas as well. When we're doing those things, we're not working through you know, a supplier rep or something like that. We're just going direct to the factory, doing it quicker than we would working through a supplier rep. And, you know, we just try and do different interesting things. Like last year with the selfie sticks, when they were the craze, we took them and custom molded them before anybody else. And that was like the big run we had this year, you know, the fidget spinners from the Hong Kong show and taking them direct from the factory and doing some cool stuff with them. So it's just, you know, staying up on trends and being young and being exciting and you know, not offering pens and pad folios. And people always ask me, how many pens do I sell? I've never sold a pen in, in six years unless somebody asked me for it. So, right. I'm just curious though. So, you're hiring a lot from outside this industry. That's good because you can mold them into the person that you want them to be. But do you find that hard also where there's a huge learning curve in them actually like understanding how this industry works? Yeah, it is. But once you get it, you can sort of carry it over to every other supplier or product, right? It's just understanding like coded pricing and setups and you know the print process. If you notice the customer base is getting younger, right? So the people who are buying these things are becoming younger. So they don't want to see pens and pad folios. So I don't want to go get somebody who's so molded in somebody else's mindset that they can't learn our sort of mantra and how we work and what we do differently. So getting somebody from outside the industry that isn't sort of brainwashed like that has been very successful for us. So yeah, that's a really good point. Hey, I just want to jump in. Now, maybe I should have made this comment a couple of minutes ago, but if you go to sobepromos.com, great website, by the way, Chris, the first thing you see is custom molded fidget spinners now available to quote, <laughs> the craze companies would be insane not to use to their advantage. Contact us to order. I love it. You, you're, you're like rocking it. And these are like pretty cool fidget spinners. So kudos to you, man. Thank you very much. The custom molded stuff is something that we love to do and whatever. If the fidget spinners are selling, that's what we'll custom mold, right? Yeah, I love it. Over to you, Stephen. Yeah, so I think to be fair, probably about 10 years ago or maybe even 12 years ago, we were pretty much the same as everybody else in the industry. I think it was an Orlando trade show where we were looking around and basically watching the moving shopping cart suitcases go around and literally like shoveling products into their cases that we realized that we were a part of that. We weren't necessarily those folks, but we were associated with that kind of mentality of like trick-or-treating and going to those trade shows and figuring out like, you know, what cool stuff we could get as opposed to thinking the other way around. And I think just by reflecting on the industry as a whole and us being a part of that, we realized like we don't want to be associated with that type of that type of an industry that people, I guess, associated with promotional products being. So I guess it was by our own realization that we wanted to be 
different than that, whatever that was. And also knowing, as Chris mentioned, we still have clients that you know, come from that type of buying or come from that generation of promotional product. But most of our new clients and referrals and even those existing clients, they're being replaced. You know, they're being younger buyers, younger companies. And so we needed to be younger and we needed to be a little more modern with our approach. So I guess, you know, taking more of the, the agency approach where, you know, people are coming to us with projects or requests and letting us kind of basically be personalized, customized shoppers for them and coming up with not just products, but ways to use it and asking the right questions of, you know, well, how are you giving that away? Or what are you doing with that? Like, maybe that's not a good idea with your, you know, $2,500 that you're going to waste on this. Like, let's do it differently. So I think that was when we finally noticed our biggest, biggest transition from the old style to what I think is a more successful approach to the industry. Hey, Stephen, you know, I'm curious, was there any generational conflict going on there that might explain why you at one point were a little bit more traditional and old school, as you were saying, whereas, you know, with your parents and then, of course, you being the next generation, you come in, like, was it your doing for the most part that pushed your parents to think in a different way or did it just evolve sort of organically? Yeah, I think it was a combination of a few things, one of which was I realized that most of the buyers were closer to myself than my parents. And I think my parents realized that as well. And so we started asking the questions like, well, what would I like? You know, or what would my wife like? Because those are the questions that would help us get us products that or you know, or get us solutions that our new client base would actually use and like. As far as the transition though, the transition was pretty organic because our clients were changing. So as our clients were changing, we naturally had to change our approach. But, you know, there was really never any tension because we have different, you know, clientele. You know, both my mom and I are in sales and, and she has one style of clientele, although it's evolving. And so, you know, her being able to see how I'm doing things and me seeing how she's doing things, we've both been able to adapt and kind of keep up with the changing of buying and the changing of the industry. I'm just curious. So, like, we're all about the same age. Where do you guys really see this industry going in the next 10 to 15, I guess, then 20 on the far side years, like where do you see suppliers being? Where do you see distributors being? Where do you guys think this industry is going to be? And whoever wants to chime in first can go. <laughs> no one wants to think. Nobody wants to. <laughs> I, I can jump in so Renya doesn't have to go first again. Oh, uh, you're sweet. I see the vast majority of distributors going away. I think it just has to happen. It's too sort of easy to enter the industry. I just think it hurts the industry in terms of everybody just, you know, dropping prices as far as they can. And I think many of those mom and pop shops, you know, unfortunately will start to go away, but it's a good thing for those who have done it right and actually, you know, compete at a high level. And then I'm sure that everybody sees eventually it going direct somehow. So yeah. either distributors and suppliers link up and sort of everything is done online or the big suppliers start going direct and, you know, I mean, the web changes everything, obviously. It, it should have changed everything a while ago in this industry, to be honest, but this industry is so slow to adapt to technology. But it's bound to happen five years from now, maybe less, where somebody, I mean, obviously, Discount Mugs has done it, but nobody talks about them. But somebody's going to do it and then the web will allow them to do it and then it'll be interesting to see where the blocks fall. Okay. Renya? 
Well, I agree in a way. I think that, you know, what's the competitive advantage at some point for the distributor, unless there really is some kind of specialty there so that we're not just relying on, you know, the top ones. I think the fact that we have this suppliers out there like you, Jason, that have stayed in their lane and done such a incredible job of innovating and making it so easy for us to sell based on onesie twosies. And, you know, we're selling something that costs a bit more. So there's also more margin in that for us than there is with us just, you know, looking to the big guys and whatever they have to offer. And really, I think that the big guys are always just taking everything that each other has. You know, when supply reps come in here, I'm, I'll always tell them like, look, just show us what's new and sorry, but we don't care about what's old and what still sells well. I mean, maybe we need to know it, but I guess my point is, I don't know that the state of the industry is definitely, you know, the elephant in the room and we don't know what's going to happen, but I don't see our clients taking it upon themselves to go to Alibaba for their next order because they don't have the time and they just don't want to mess it up. Yeah. So does that mean that it will still be like an old school distributorship or as we know it? Maybe, maybe not. I don't know. I wish there was a magic wand so that I could see and plan for it, but we don't know. But I agree with you, Chris. I think we're going to see more suppliers start selling direct. And like, how are they going to be policed? But Renya, just a quick question for you. Do you think that there are too many distributors in the industry? Do you get that feeling when you're out competing against these people? You know, I do. Yes, absolutely. I think that when people say that they're already working with someone else, it's easy for us to say, hey, no problem. And kind of stand by our what makes us great, right? And not forget what makes us great and not be intimidated by the fact that there are so many of them. But yes, absolutely. I think a huge number of distributors that are out there, the ones that, like you guys said, are going to the ASI shows and packing their boxes full of whatever they can, those guys are going to be quickly leaving, you know? And really, I think it's always smart for us to look at like how the promo product industry compares to other industries, right? There are plenty of other industries out there that are fighting the same battles in terms of technology and technology making information so readily available to everybody out there. And one industry that I look at a lot is real estate, because now we can all go on and see what kind of houses we want to see and do the vetting ourselves. Do I think that that means real estate agents will be a thing of the past? Not necessarily, but do I see that industry changing a bit? And maybe some of that commission, I'm saying in quotes, goes to the buyer since the buyer's doing more legwork nowadays. Maybe, but I don't see it falling apart in the fact that there won't be real estate agents. Yeah. So I don't think I know the answer. I don't know if anybody does, but I agree that our industry's flooded with a lot of BS and it gives our industry kind of like a lame reputation sometimes. And all of us are here as the rebels to make sure that our clients know that we don't see that. We don't look at this stuff the same way that other people might. We don't call it swag. We don't call it tchotchkes. We're defensive of that kind of stuff. I am. <laughs> so, yeah, that's my statement. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. I think it's a good stake in the ground. <laughs> I like that part that, you know, like people are defensive of it. I was at a wedding on Sunday and the guy's like, oh, what do you do? I'm like, oh, I own like, you know, a company and we do like custom printed like electronics and like bags and stuff. And he's like, oh, so like swag. I'm like, no, no, like not like swag, but like, no, the stuff we're selling is like high quality stuff. He's like, oh, yeah, like, I've got like pens and stuff. I was like, no, 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 no. That's swag, man. We're like high quality branded goods. And he's like, I just don't get it. I'm like, 
It doesn't matter, man. Just keep buying the shit. <laughs> it doesn't matter. Buy Felicia. Yeah. Buy Felicia. I agree. I think the industry definitely is going to condense on itself, but I'm more inclined to think that it's all going to be driven by client buying behavior rather than supplier distributor relationships. Only because like I've seen examples, even with some of my own clients in the retail markets where direct selling for a lot of suppliers, they're allowed to have you know direct sales reps into markets like golf stores and college bookstores and things like that. And a lot of our clients, like even in the university side, have talked about consolidating their purchasing. And you know, when we've tried to do orders, they've come back to us and they said, no, 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 we want every group to go to the Nike rep directly. And we're like, so you want the Nike rep to handle these 24 polos for this one department on this side of the school? And then the, the rep from Nike or whomever, that's just an example, will say, well, absolutely, no, we're not going to be able to handle all 300 departments of this university. So you guys have it. You know, so it's a smaller piece of the bigger pie, but it's still a huge chunk when you add it all together. And I'm not sure that even the, the staples and the, all the other groups that have all these hundreds of sales reps, they can't keep up with these certain markets and certain industries where buying isn't consolidated. Now, the way people buy obviously seems to be changing with the way people research product and research pricing and things like that. But, you know, if you can do things where they can't price it out, whether it be, you know, ideas and programs it doesn't matter what the price is. So that's kind of my take on the 10-year scope. I certainly think that there'll be less and less distributors, but there's still be enough out there that match the client type. You know, whether that means some industries don't buy the same way, well, then those distributors will go away if they're handling those types of clients. I think it's a good point though, you know, letting the client buying behavior and following that as our cursor, so to speak. I mean, look, yeah. it's tough that we can't compete with the big, let's just say it, I'll say it, for imprint. We can't, unless we're going to risk our homes and our kids and our families to try and do something that's that big. But then why would we do it? Then we're in the technology world. So because we're not in the technology world, we're in the business of dealing with clients and, and consulting with them. And, and that's fun. And the best feeling is when you know they take what you suggested and they go with it and you almost can't believe it. But yeah, I think that's a great point of just paying attention to how they're buying and how that's going to change. But we do have to pay attention to technology at the same time. How can we make it easier so that polo shirt order for 24 units takes us 35 seconds? Oh, wait, common skew. <laughs> right. <laughs> hey, so guys, I, you know, I'm curious about this. We talked about four imprint and, you know, it's, I don't think it's a problem to mention them by name. They're a big competitor in the space. But when I think of, you know, each of your companies, Perfect, Brandaid, and Sobe, do you guys feel you really compete with Four Imprint? It's not a trick question, but like you think about like your perfect ideal customer, you know, like the kind of person you really want to do business with for the rest of your career. Are they price matching you against Four Imprint, or are you guys basically a different business consideration for them? Renya, go ahead. <laughs> go ahead. No, no, no. In a perfect world, yes, that's the customer I want because they're buying online, right? So there's so much manual process that goes into, you know, the distributorship order in terms of, hey, can you help me with my art? Can you show me what it looks like on the product? You know, I know foreign print does only a certain amount online, but if, if that's the perfect customer, then yes, that's sort of what I'm looking for. And yes, we do have people price matches quite a bit nowadays just because it's so readily available, right? It's like, you know, you send pricing, you're like, okay, I'm going to maintain this margin. And then they come back and, you know, they got it 50 cents less. What are you going to do? You know, you have to price match that. 
Yeah, I mean, I get what you're saying. I, I don't necessarily think we are competing against them. We try to stay away from the people who will constantly price match us there, more the people who you know trust what we do in terms of idea generation and creative solutions and being able to source things overseas are sort of the people that we're looking for and the people that get the most attention from us. But I think people are becoming more savvy in terms of price shopping, and, and you just got to be aware of that when you're you know sending out quotes and whatnot. So, Totally. Hey, listen, I want to challenge you on something really quickly there. You mentioned that if you have a customer that comes to you that says, hey, I saw this price on 4imprint for 50 cents, I need to match it. What are you going to do? I might have butchered that quote there or what you said. But is that yeah. really the case? Did you feel like if you said to the customer, hey, listen, I can't match that, they are going to walk 100% of the time? No, not 100% of the time. Because some people, like Ryan, you said, just don't trust that process yet, or they just don't want to get it wrong. Yeah. But I mean, people will walk. Yes, people will say, hey, you know, I mean, if I say, hey, I can get you close, or I always try to get them to a different product or a different supplier, you know, like, hey, you know, I wouldn't necessarily want to, I know where they're buying it from. I don't think you want to work with them. So what about this product, which I can guarantee you're going to love, you know? Yeah. I mean, it's a challenge, but, you know, the internet has opened up the price matching process and where you're competing against these people. So there are people that will walk and especially the younger generation will be like, all right, screw you. Here we go. I'm going to take this price and save myself 50 cents. So, yeah, totally. No, that's fair. That's fair. You know, and another thing that we like to kind of use as an argument towards the foreign print, you know, selection. I mean, yes, it's great when people can go on and, and do that and sort through. And this topic is, has come up at a lot of the SKU cons, Mark, as you know, that whether or not to even keep the store. Because I know that you guys at Rightslip, you guys got rid of it a few years ago. We've toyed with it and we're actually in the process of, you know, redoing our site. So, you know, we're also on the fence about it. You know, I noticed that, you know, Soapy's got a pared down site. That's awesome. You know, you're still giving people a chance to to kind of peruse through and, and still look through product. You know, who knows what they want. But it is nice when you do get people doing that part of legwork for you. Because oftentimes, even after asking someone 25 questions about their project, they still can't get that much out. But somehow it does get out when they're on the internet. But the one thing is, you know, I think that it's important for smaller distributors to remember is that all that stuff that's on for imprint, it's all the top stuff. And yeah. it's just something to keep in mind, just like a way of saying that we're not required to sell that stuff. We can sell you something for the same budget, something different. You know, we can work around your budget, but work with something different, more innovative. Maybe it's a wood sticker instead of a 50 cent pencil. I don't know. But thinking along the lines of almost using them as the like, oh, sure, go for it. If you want to go that route, sure, go there. No problem. We actually have had quite a bit of discussion internally about just our approach on whether it be catalogs or presentations and things like that, mainly because of all the sites out there. So our thought is we're only going to show and only going to present things that you won't be able to find on those sites. Because the assumption is if you show them all, you know, like the cheap commodity products, they may not know you can do the nicer high-end stuff. Whereas the other way around, if we show them all the nice end quality items, it's assumed you can also do a pen, you know, or also do the commodity items. So almost like we're showing more of the top end products and then we just have a little disclaimer. But if you need something else, we'll have that too. It's just harder to create a reputation the other way around. So that's been our approach for the last little bit. And we'll still get the foreign print requests and things like that. But, you know, we'll show some good, better, best options on the same product to get them out of the price territory or we'll 
add packaging or you know something like that to kind of differentiate it. You know, when someone comes to us with like a custom ink, though, we love that because we can always beat the price and they've created a design for themselves that's not good. So we can make it look yeah. way better and beat the price and get the order. So it's, you know, stuff like that we, we love. Yeah, that's kind of been our approach with the site. Cool. I want to throw another random question in too. Like, so Amazon, you know, recently filed and was approved for a bunch of different patents for on-demand apparel. And everyone's talking about Amazon getting more and more into the promo industry. How do you guys think that's going to affect four imprints business when Amazon actually jumps into it? <laughs> yeah, I'd be nervous if I was four imprint. Yeah, for sure. That's the one nobody wants to compete with, you know? Yeah, definitely. Anyone that has the saying of your profit margin is my opportunity seems to yeah. uh, <laughs> <laughs> scare pretty much anybody. But I do think that that kind of goes with the mindset of the company and the approach. Um, yeah, I'm excited for Amazon to get into promo. I'm, I'm curious what it's going to entail and how they're going to do it. You know, like we are a partner with Zazzle and we do a lot of business with Zazzle and they're primed to be in this industry, but they've always stayed away from it. Like, so I'm curious what Amazon's mentality is and how they're going to really approach it because it's a difficult mountain to climb. And I'm sure they're preparing internally to make sure it's executed super well, but I'm interested to see what that initial splash is. Hey, Jason, I'm curious to get your take on, on Amazon coming into the industry as to whether that's a net positive for you as a supplier at Orgadio. Yeah, I mean, I am excited for Amazon to come into the industry. I'm also scared, but I also know Amazon's probably going to start with stuff that's not going to jeopardize my business. It's going to be apparel, right? So they're going to stick with that print-on-demand probably on apparel and kind of like take the approach to like Scalable Press and some of these other guys like Represent are doing, you know, for online businesses where people can have you know, like renyasteshirts.com and have a bunch of different designs and not hold any stock. And as orders come in, Amazon will probably fulfill it via their prime product offering and all their distribution centers. So I'm worried, but I'm not too worried because they're not going to be getting into custom printed electronics. But I'm excited about the opportunity, though, like a company like myself, where we could potentially align like we do with Zazzle with Amazon and do some of the custom printing on some partner products for them and be like a maker for them. I think that will come, but to start with, I'm, I'm not too worried, but I'm interested to see how it plays out. Yeah. So if you think of Zazzle right now, like when you think of a company like Zazzle, do you see them as a marketplace or do you see them as a distributor that just is selling your product online or is it a little bit of both? Zazzle bought Boundless two and a half years ago and everyone thought that Zazzle was going to you know, make a big splash and big play in a promo, but they haven't. And no one can really figure out internally what the strategy is behind buying one of the biggest distributors out there, right? So Zazzle, I look at as a marketplace, right? Like if you love unicorns, you can come up with tons of different unicorn designs and sell them on Zazzle. But I also see a lot of small businesses because we're printing the orders for them, ordering, you know, like five, six pieces of our speakers or our headphones on Zazzle versus calling a distributor directly. So I don't know, it's like Zazzle, Cafe Press, Shutterfly, they're all kind of like that weird gray ground between like, are they a marketplace? Are they a distributor? Are they taking business away from distributors? Like, what's the play? I still can't figure it out, but we like just printing shit for them. It's easy. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, I know. I'm back to the Amazon thing. I'm interested to really see how it plays out. So, I know, Jason, you wanted to talk a little bit about big national distributors that are putting pressure on suppliers and whether present company is included in those 
you know, ham-fisted, difficult negotiations with suppliers. So that's sort of part number one, like how do each of the three of you distributors handle your relationships with suppliers from a price negotiation perspective? That'll be the first question. Then I've got a question for you afterwards, Jason. So why don't we start with you, Stephen? You know, you're obviously not a national account, but you guys are certainly a nice size distributorship. You obviously want to get good pricing from your supplier partners. How do you approach price negotiations with suppliers, rebates, all that stuff? Yeah. So that question a month ago would have been a little different for us. You know, we, from a company financial standpoint, actually joined a purchasing group, but part of our requirements for it and part of our fear with it was, you know, there's all these buying groups and purchasing groups out there. And, you know, we would hear stories, you know, from our outside reps and, and even inside reps about, you know, hey, Joe Schmo called me in and they really, you know, beat me down for pricing and I won't hear from him again for another year. You know, and it's almost like a thorn in their side being a part of some of those groups. And that was our biggest hiccup with joining a group is because we want our own reputation to carry the weight by itself without having to leverage anything. So, you know, when it comes to pricing, I mean, we really never beat up any suppliers for pricing. It was one of those things like a lot of suppliers now will have this criteria where if you get to XYZ in sales, then we'll give you, you know, EQP or one or 2% or anything like that. But without those pricing advantages, you can't get there because there's someone else is offering it to you. So it was one of those things where if we like the model of the company, or we think that they're a good fit for our company to sell to our clients, then we would just talk to them about what we think the opportunity is with their line and our company and say, hey, you know, we're willing you know, to try you guys out or to use your line in order for us to do that and to compete with these other groups, you know, we're going to need some help. And usually if you approach it that way, we've never had any issues with a supplier providing us, you know, a trial period of pricing or, you know, it's very easy to say, you know, either you give it to us or we're gone. But in some cases, you know, with some suppliers, they do have specialized products or specialized markets that fit with your clients. So yeah, so it's not really, it wasn't a huge piece or there wasn't like a huge vetting process, but it's more of just a discussion with inside and outside reps about their fit and their opportunity within our company. How about you, Chris? What's your approach? I mean, given some of your heritage with Bulletline, are you guys pretty savvy negotiators with the suppliers? Well, I, I actually just learned that the secret to getting outside refs to stop knocking on my door is to join a buying group. So I'm currently Googling them at the moment. <laughs> no, I mean, when we first started and we were young and stupid, we used to call people and try that little empty threat like, hey, you know, we used to own bullet line. We're going to never use you again. But there's no point in doing that on our end, because no matter what size we are, we're still going to need help at some point. So, I mean, Jason can attest to this. I mean, he and I just worked on a project where we came to a mutual agreement like, hey, you pay for this and I'll pay for that. And let's just make it happen because in the end, it's the customer that we're trying to please. Yeah. And obviously, you know, we're trying to protect our margins at all times. And, you know, most people are cool about giving EQP as long as you've shown that you have some sort of track record to work with them. And I'm not normally the person to call somebody on a first time basis and say, hey, you got to give me EQP for this order. I'll generally try and place a few orders, show them that we are, you know, legitimate and we can do some business with them and then approach it, say, you know, it would help us out if we could get EQP or some sort of special pricing or, you know, this client is getting pricing from X. Can you help me out here? You know, people are starting to know our name in the industry in terms of supplierships and it's getting easier to sort of work with people on pricing. But, 
you know, making that empty thread is sort of pointless in the long run because eventually you're going to need that person to help you out. And that's never going to leave a good taste in their mouth. So that's sort of our approach to it at this point. No, it's funny how much you learn when you first start off. It certainly reminds me of my earlier days when I was getting into the right sleeve business and I had that same, you know, I would say cocky attitude where I thought that I was, you know, God's gift to the industry and to suppliers. And and I'd been in business for maybe like eight months and I had maybe like three hot orders. Hot orders at the time might have been like a $10,000 order or something and thought that I could, you know, throw my weight around. And then uh, it's funny as you look back at it, you're like, man, I was such an ass. (laughs) When you think about it, it's good to know that, you know, you had the same, you know, ass oriented moment. Yeah, we were pretty arrogant at first. (laughs) Mark, there's still a lot of people that exist like that, though. Trust me. (laughs) I'm sure. All the time. Yeah, for sure. Well, I want to get to you in just a second, Jason, but Renya, do you have anything to add to this in terms of? you know, how it is that you partner with suppliers, but at the same time, also make sure that there's good margin at the end of the day for branded. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's kind of exactly what Chris was talking about. For us, it's just transparency. You know, we need to sell to the client for five. Okay, where will you budge? Where can we dance? You know, let's get the order. Yeah. And that's where I think, you know, going back to Jason, you just haven't built this really brilliant supplier model within the industry. If we're doing that with a high commodity product, like a drawstring bag, oh my gosh. I mean, we will definitely, you know, have to shop that around and be up transparent with that. And so many people sell the same exact bags. So one of them will give the quantities are right. And we know that suppliers are in the business of making money just as much as we are. So we don't like to have to do it. It just all comes down to order by order, client by client. You know, we work with a lot of clients who it's like the quantity might be high. Turnaround's going to be short. And they're giveaways. So it's a price play. And those things suck. But when they do happen, you know, we have to ask. It's transparency. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, for sure. All right. So Jason, I want to ask you this question. You know, there was a great article written by Michelle Bell from ASI called the Supplier Squeeze, where suppliers were, you know, complaining how they're getting raked over the coals by distributors, particularly the larger distributors you know, with all sorts of things like rebates and, you know, marketing expenses and just they all have their hands out. And it, it really painted a lot of these bigger distributors in a, in a pretty negative light yeah. from the standpoint of how it is that they ran their business and the expectations they had for suppliers. So I know you're the kind of guy who is happy to speak your mind. What do you say when big distributor X comes to you And here's for context, big distributor X is already doing a pretty healthy amount of business with you. Let's say they represent like 10% of your sales. Okay. I'm just hypothetically, but that's, you know, a fairly big number. And they say, okay, Jason, you know, it's time to have our annual discussion. Our rebate will be this, this year. And there is no ands, ifs, or buts about it. What do you say? And do you play that game? Okay. So first off, the article is great. And I respect the hell out of Sharon from ETS because he kind of spoke it properly. So yeah, we take the same mentality, right? So, and this just happened two weeks ago with a top 15 distributor in this industry. They came to us, they said, Hey, we're not really doing anything. We want to start going with you guys. Uh, if we're going to do this, we have a 6% technology fee. Which is great <laughs> because you use the fucking internet. You, it's technology. That's great, right? So we have a 6% technology fee and a 4% rebate on top of it. And then once we do X amount of dollars with you, we want this. And I got the paperwork and I was on a conference call with her and I was, (laughs) I was just laughing. Like 
why should I pay you a 6% rebate because you use some sort of amazing invoicing technology? Like, well, it's not even amazing, right? So, like, I don't give a shit. I'm not going to do it. And she's like, well, yeah. I don't think we can do business then. I was like, once you're ready to get, because your reps are asking to do business with us and we're not set up for a reason because we won't pay the 6% technology fee. Yeah. So I said, more or less, you know, let me know if you ever get rid of it. Right. So then for people that we're already doing business with that come to us and push heavily on these rebates, it's tough, man. It's really tough. We look at them and we kind of recraft those relationships and those rebates. So for us, what we've done is we've kind of not done it traditionally and we've done it more or less based on growth rebates, right? So if a customer's coming to us and saying, hey, we want a 5% rebate from dollar one, we'll say, hey, we'll give you that 5% rebate, but it's not going to be from dollar one. It's going to be based on if you did, you know, half a million dollars with us last year, we're going to give you that 5% rebate once you hit you know six hundred thousand dollars with us this year but we're going to give you the additional cash based on how much additional revenue you bring in so if you hit seven hundred fifty thousand that rebate's going to go to ten percent right so we're kind of baiting them and encouraging them to grow their business with us because they're going to make more money by doing so and we justify our sales based on that as well too right and but if they come back to you and say hey jason don't be a wise guy it's got to be on dollar one that's the way that we do things here at big distributor x we don't do it. All the big relationships, people have kind of been open this year and focusing more on the way that we're trying to grow the rebate. So if they're doing a lot of program business with us, we're doing it based on the number of orders they're actually placing with us. So a lot of them like the upside that we're offering by offering a way bigger rebate than what they're traditionally getting from other people, but encouraging them to increase their spend with us. So, I mean, there's still some people that have that dollar one rebate with us, but they're slowly getting less and less and less. And we're sick of it. We, we don't want to do it. And if it's for a new customer that's asking for a dollar one rebate, you know, like Chris was saying, like we got to see some business behind it to justify it. Otherwise, we're going to build that percentage into your pricing. You're not going to get EQP pricing with us. You're going to get some jacked up pricing that has your rebate built into it. Right. Sure. 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 Yeah. Yeah. For <laughs> sure. Well, I mean, I think it's bold for you to be honest, and but I think at the same time, like you're clearly struggling with how you manage these bigger distributors because at the end of the day they are great clients right yeah. like i'm not suggesting they're bad customers but you have to do it profitably and you know i think that my final point to maybe close off this topic is that if you're jason at orgadio like you're a solid supplier with a truly distinct product i mean there's not other last time i checked i didn't think there was anyone else that had a box sand right for instance. Yeah. i mean i'm sure there's i'm sure there's knockoffs of it that are out there with other suppliers but if you want the box and with like the cool packaging and the story and the quality and, you know, all that stuff, you can only get it from one source. And I think that distributors, and I can certainly speak to this given my distributor background, are much more likely to play hardball with a supplier when they know that they could get that product literally from anywhere. Right. Whereas when your choices are, you know, limited to like one, then you know that the balance of power is not necessarily in your favor. Yeah. And I think that the reason why that that's an interesting point is that it's no different from the distributor side. I mean, we started talking off with Renya and your model, and certainly Stephen and, and uh, Chris, you guys are the same way, that you guys are unique. You know, you bring this great package to the table. And when you're firing on all cylinders and you're communicating that properly to the end client, well, the end client can't shop the whole experience. They can shop a fidget spinner if that's all you're bringing to the table, but I don't think you guys are doing that. And I think that's what's exciting, or that's what excites me about the future of the industry is the ability to create these companies that have got these unique value propositions that they don't need to, you know, bend over when it comes to price. 
So there you go. I'll, I'll get off my soapbox. Yeah, I think also, you know, like if enough suppliers start saying no and no and no, like it's going to change. And for the people that are saying no, like, you know, I'll use the three of these guys, like Chris, McFadden, and Renya, like I'd rather spread my business across. Like if I was going to get half a million dollars from distributor XYZ that wanted me to do a 10% rebate, but I've got three mid-tier distributors that aren't asking for a rebate and I know aren't going to beat me up. I'd rather get my business there and diversify it, right? Like I'd rather make up that business across 10 different distributors versus one because I also don't have all my eggs in one basket that way too. So I think it's up to suppliers to start saying no. And then if they don't want to say no, bend over backwards and deal with it. But you're going to be the ones that are going to have all your cards, you know, in their hands. Yeah. I like to yeah. diversify my bonds like Jizza. <laughs> <laughs> the industry is, it's unknown where it's going to go for the future, but it's really up to, you know, people like us to change it. And I want to personally just thank the three of you guys and Mark for getting on this uh, rebel podcast and speaking your minds and telling it how it is. Cause because of people like you and people like myself that the industry is changing for the better. And I'm excited for the future. We're the ones that are going to survive the promo apocalypse. <laughs> I agree. <laughs> and thanks you guys for putting this together. It's so cool that this exists. And I know you guys put a lot of extracurricular time and effort into it. And it's so greatly appreciated. Well, thank you. Thanks again for listening to this edition of the Promo Kitchen podcast. If you like what you hear, you can subscribe to the podcast through iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. And remember, you can always get involved in the Promo Kitchen community by visiting us at promokitchen.org. You can also show your support by donating to our cause at promokitchen.org donate. We would sincerely appreciate it. See you next time. Thank you.